Hello guys and welcome to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast where like Michael Knight I'm a lone North Wales crusader defending the cause of the innocent, the helpless, the powerless, well no scratch that actually, what I do is from my spare room research and recount some of the most obscure unfamiliar crimes from all the dark corners of the UK and Ireland for your own listening pleasure. I'm nothing like the Hoff at all but the car does remain on my all-time vehicle wish list. If I could have any vehicle, it would be a flip between Kit and the A-Team van. It just struck me to say that because I had Night Rider on the other day. And let's just say, some things are best left as memories, aren't they? I'm of course Paul, the host, creator and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are the enthusiasts who keep the show spinning and it's fabulous as ever having each and every one of you joining me for an episode that I hope finds you all good and well. So I've had a week off from the podcast because life, everything, it caught up with me a bit after a crazy few weeks and I didn't want to put out what I would personally feel was filler and substandard to the bar that I set myself for the show. So in that time, I caught up with myself, I got cracking on this series' trilogy, researching it, and I also managed to get bonus episode number 20 out for Patreon supporters. Massive thanks are going out, and I know I'm playing catch-up here a bit, to return in a new Patreon supporter of the show, that's namely Thomas Murphy, Dan Dashiell Calls Gibson, great name or what, eh? Jane Spencer Sears, Kaz Harvey, Kate McGregor, Amy, Olivia Walls, Lyndon Dowdle, Mo, Jameson, Sam Murdoch, Kristen McKinney, Sandra McGovern, and Karen R, Rebecca Pittman, and Rachel Hale, who have all edited their support to the show. It's very kind and absolutely so much appreciated of you guys, and I hope that you've enjoyed the bonus episodes of the show that you get for being a Patreon supporter. If you don't already, and you want to join these guys too in supporting the show on Patreon, then like Daredevil on a nudist speech, it's not hard. You just head over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast and then go from there. There are several tiers available for you and with a couple of shakes, you could be hearing the tale behind the Tinkersdale Woods murder, the Samaritan and the Salvationist or the latest one, bonus episode number 20 as I said, Operation Magnesium with another one coming later this month. Now also coming later this month, I'm going to sit down and do this Ask Me Anything episode. It will be rough as a badger's arse, I warn you, but it will be me, in my own words, answering what you guys have sent me so far. I shall also this week be placing up the poll for the Voted For Patreon Supporters episode that I make available for everybody on the show's second birthday, which is coming towards the end of the month. Keep your eyes open for that and cast your vote on whichever title intrigues you most or if you've heard them of course, whichever one you think is best. But before all that though, we've got this series trilogy to bust out, so we best get to that right now then. For the trilogy, triple episode, whatever we should call it this series, I'm going with a case that may be a bit familiar to many listeners. I know it's been covered by a couple of other shows already, but when I first started the show nearly two years ago now, it was one of the first cases that went onto the fridge chalkboard and it's one that I've long planned to cover. The entire tale takes place within the area of South Wales over more than a quarter of a century and from start to finish is one of the most fascinating cases I've ever come across with certainly one of the most evil and brutal killers. They get worse on this show, don't they, Bailey? 
It even has a throwback to the first ever true crime book that I ever got, that I've still got to this day, that has a very fond place in my heart and on my bookshelf. And was the case that last series, when I was doing the Carstairs trilogy, I thought, yeah, that's definitely the one for next time. I hope over the next three episodes you see why. We'll look at the crimes, then the detection, and then something called possibles, which hopefully all will become apparent with. The episode this week contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so please use discretion whilst listening as always, folks. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts this week for the first part of this season's trilogy that I've entitled The South Wales Slayer. We're back to the 1980s, to the area of Pembrokeshire in South Wales, for part one, The Recluses and the Ramblers. Located right on the southwesterly tip of Wales, the spectacular area of Pembrokeshire is Wales' fifth largest county and the county home of the UK's smallest city, St David's. Another famous David from there is musician David Gray, please forgive me for saying that, but the area is probably more widely known as being the home of Pembrokeshire National Park, Britain's only mainly coastal national park. This covers up a sizeable portion of the county, more than a third of it, and whilst there are a few towns and many villages scattered throughout the remainder, it's mostly rural and focused predominantly on agriculture. It's not an area that I've ever visited myself, but I know many people who have, and everybody I've spoken to all agree that it really is an amazing place to visit, with a national park attracting thousands of visitors each year. My bit for the South Wales Tourist Board done there. We go back then to the Sunday before Christmas 1985, December the 22nd, and a works Christmas party was going on at the Windsor Club in the Pembrokeshire village of Jordanston. On designated taxi service that night so the husbands could go out and enjoy themselves were insurance broker Anna McEwen and her sister-in-law Lorraine Brown, who just after 11pm that evening had set off from the village of Lanstadwell a few miles south to go and collect their husbands from their bash. As Anna and Lorraine were driving up the A477 Scoverston Road towards Jordanston, in the distance across the open fields, Lorraine noticed flames coming from an isolated copse of trees set off the adjoining Nayland Road, where she knew there was a large manor house. There were no blue lights apparent from what she could see, and so Lorraine and Anna decided to go and investigate. They turned the car off onto the Nayland Road and shortly left off here onto a bumpy lane that led a short distance to Scoverston Manor, a large three-storey Georgian country house located in sizeable grounds near the village of Stainton. Now throughout many accounts the house is referred to variously with the suffix park or manor and I've chosen to use manor. As Anna and Lorraine approached the house, as soon as they broke clear from the lining of trees that screened the house and grounds from the lane, the scene before them was one of absolute horror. The house was fiercely ablaze, with fire spreading rapidly, and flames gushing through the upper windows that had given out due to the force of the heat inside. After bravely attempting to open the front door to no avail because it was locked, and hammering upon the door brought no response, Anna and Lorraine set off and raced to the Windsor Club to raise the alarm. 
Almost at the same time, an off-duty Doved Fire Service officer, Mike George, was locking up for the evening about a mile away when he noticed a large fire in the distance. Realising at once that it was Scoverston Manor, Mike set off immediately for the scene to lend assistance, arriving there at 11.31pm, just ahead of the emergency services that had by that time answered Lorraine Brown's frantic 999 call. Fire crews immediately began to tackle the huge fire, requiring a number of tenders, and although they were assisted by torrential rain some 10 minutes after they'd arrived, it did little to help stem the blaze. It was that fierce water had to be pumped from an ornamental pond in the grounds to tackle it. At first, crews had forced the door and managed to get some way inside of the property to fight the fire, but the large house was that gutted and collapsing that rapidly that it was deemed unsafe for them to move into the house any further at that time and they were scaled back to an outside position. That wasn't before they'd spotted through the smoke a charred body lying on the mid-stairs landing to the first floor. When it was deemed safe enough for crews to move in some time later, they noticed a very strong smell of accelerant, paraffin or diesel fumes inside the now gutted property. Heading immediately to where the severely burnt body lay, rolled paper was found to have been arranged around it and as photographic evidence was made of the corpse and the scene, the body was manoeuvred onto a plastic sheet to be removed. As this was done, it was noticed that a charred blanket had been placed underneath the body and then a sizeable, still recognisable hole was spotted on the lower right side of the abdomen. It looked suspiciously like a gunshot wound. The dead man was almost certainly the owner and occupier of Scoverston Manor, a 58-year-old wealthy farmer named Richard James Skeel Thomas. Scoverston Manor had been in the Thomas family for generations, and Richard and his 56-year-old sister Helen had been raised there, and both had lived there for all of their lives. Richard had taken over the running of the family farm since his father's death many years before, and although the Thomases owned a number of farming properties in the area and had a sizeable combined estate, the impressive-looking house and grounds were actually run down and in urgent need of repair, and the pair lived in conditions of near squalor. The pair. So where was Helen Thomas? The car was parked outside in the grounds. Was she still somewhere inside? As fire crews remained at the scene and began to prepare to search for what was likely another body, the male body had been taken to Withybush Mortuary in Haverford West, where the corpse, confirmed to be that of Richard Thomas, was x-rayed and a massive shotgun pellets found in the upper abdomen and lower chest. The examining home office pathologist, Dr. O.G. Williams, suspected they were dealing with a case of murder-suicide and although one would expect evidence of a shotgun suicide to be apparent more likely around the head or face of a body, Dr. Williams demonstrated with his own shotgun the mechanics to show how this could be possible with an abdomen shot. So had Richard Thomas shot his sister and then shot himself, or had Helen shot him and then turned the gun on herself? Helen had to be found. Which we shall get to after a short word about this week's sponsors of the show. 
Now, like me, do you enjoy trying new styles of clothing, but are put off by the whole shopping nightmare? You know, endless trawling through shops or websites, and then the nuisance of the overwhelming choice that you're faced with when you do so, and then the inconsistency of the sizes of stuff that may look absolutely great online, but when it comes to getting them and trying them on, nope, it's just not happening. It's easy to find yourself stuck in a rut if this puts you off, isn't it? And this is where Stitch Fix comes in to save the day. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that have very kindly sponsored the show this week and it offers you a solution to your shopping dilemmas that takes all of the work and the heartache out of making sure that you're well dressed for yourself. It saves you the time of having to seek out and discover the latest best brands and styles because it does it all for you and it couldn't be simpler to do. To get yourself started just head over to www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime that's www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime and go from there once you're there you simply fill in a short style quiz it doesn't take long to do at all and it's very straightforward it tells stitch fixes stylists everything they need to know about your own personal favored styles your sizes and your budgets a personal stylist will then handpick and send you five items of clothing from some of the best European brands. You get to try on everything and mix and match it with your existing wardrobe and anything you love, then you buy. Anything that's not your bag, you simply send it back, no worries, both delivery and returns are free both ways. It's that simple and your styling charge of just £10 is deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy. Stitchfix were very kind enough to get in touch with me as show sponsors and offer me a trial of the service and I have to say it's great. The clothes are great, the service is very fluid, very prompt and the style quiz is very simple to do which I especially liked because I usually lose patience with filling in online sign-up forms and I found this one a marked refreshing difference. You can visualise and simply click what styles you like or what's not your thing and the different styles available mean that everyone is catered for. To see for yourselves and get started with Stitch Fix today, just head over to www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime. That's www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime and get yourself fixed by Stitch Fix. We shall now return to the recluses and the ramblers. By 10 o'clock the following morning, fire tenders were still in place around the property, and by this time, what remained of the building was a precarious mess. Although the fire had now been extinguished, the entire roof and second floor of the house were gone, and one part of the house had collapsed completely. Helen's bedroom on the first floor had completely collapsed through, crashing below into what had been Richard Thomas's study and it was here that Helen's body was discovered as the fire service began digging out the debris. Almost unrecognisable, it appeared as though she'd been in her bedroom when the fire broke out, and disturbingly, it appeared that she'd been tied up at some point beforehand. A length of black rope was found underneath her body, and the remnants of clothing was found knotted around her neck to form either a gag or a blindfold. Like Richard, X-rays later showed a mass of shotgun pellets where Helen had also been shot, this time in the head, causing catastrophic wounds. 
Now up to this point, it still seemed likely that this was a domestic crime. The locations of both bodies did raise questions for as to why Helen appeared to have been tied up and why set a fire in the property as well. But people's actions in murder-suicides are illogical and surely they can't be thinking in a right frame of mind when they take their own lives, can they? And suicide is very common, sadly, in the farming industry after all. But the problem police had with this was that there was no murder-suicide weapon for them to get the forensic proof of this from. If this was the case and this is what had happened, then the shotgun should have been near either Richard or Helen's body, or at least somewhere nearby in the remains of the house. But after two days of searching painstakingly through the debris and the rubble, no weapon or cartridge cases were found. By the end of Christmas Eve 1985, Dovid Powys police were forced to the conclusion that they had a double murder on their hands. Now imagine the logistical nightmare of attempting to begin a double murder investigation on Christmas Day, but it had to be done nonetheless, and a team of more than 120 drafted in officers, led by head of Dovid Powys CID, Detective Chief Superintendent David Davis, got underway with house-to-house inquiries in the local areas. Vehicle roadblocks were put in place and all motorists stopped and spoken to as meanwhile the Thomas's backgrounds were also being pieced together to establish if there was anyone or anything here that provided a possible motive for murder. Richard and Helen Thomas had lived at Scoverston Manor all of their lives and were regarded in the locality as being landed gentry. Richard owned property at and kept cattle at nearby Norton Farm and aside from their joint interest in Scoverston Manor and its sizeable land, Helen owned two farms of her own at Great Harmerston and Beaconing. Between the pair, they owned some 600 plus acres of property, with a combined wealth estimated to be in the region of three quarters of a million pounds. Described in the press as the millionaire recluses, Whilst it's true that Richard and Helen did keep themselves themselves and never entertained any visitors at Scoverston Manor, they were liked by all who knew them, and especially amongst the numerous seasonal workers that they'd employed over the years to assist with farming. Neither of the siblings had ever married or had any known relationships, which supported this reclusive moniker given them by the press, although Helen was a regular and involved churchgoer and member of Stainton Parish Church Council. She translated books into Braille for the blind and supported riding for the disabled and attended a weekly art class in nearby Haverford West. Richard, however, was a bit more of a mystery. He didn't have any known close friends, but he was known to be a decent employer and as we've said, he was popular with the seasonal workers he retained and always paid in cash. Widely respected in local farming circles and a member of the Clethai Grassland Society, he was especially known for his shrewdness in cattle dealing and for being cautious with his money. You never tend to see a skint farmer really, do you? He was known to be forthright and direct with people and he wasn't afraid to have a go, as was evidenced by a widely reported long-running legal battle that he'd won some months before against the large company Gulf Oil concerning the flow of water to his lands. The courts had awarded in his favour and he'd received a settlement of £70,000 as a result of the dispute. Yet he wouldn't spend this where it was needed, he was far too cautious for that. 
Richard's caution with money, shall we say, was a constant bone of contention between him and Helen, and it was reported that the siblings often squabbled about the state of their properties. Helen was constantly on him to pay for the desperately needed upkeep and repairs of these, whereas Richard was reluctant to do so, not being bothered about the near squalor that the couple lived in, instead concentrating solely on farming the lands and buying and selling cattle. As a result, the property was in a poor state of repair, and on the few occasions when Richard did acquiesce to Helen's requests for these, reportedly he would perhaps mischievously, perhaps even spitefully, carry them out, but not quite how she'd requested. This would then lead to even more rows between the two, and at one point some years previously, Helen had decided to leave Scoverston Manor and live alone in one of her own farms, only conceding to stay when Richard had injured his back and she'd felt an obligation to look after him. So the well-known squabbles between the pair over money and farm maintenance would have seemed to have supported the murder-suicide theory, perhaps one row too many, had it not been for the fact that Richard's shotgun was missing and no spent shotgun cartridges had been found at the scene either. It was unquestionably a double murder that police had on their hands and the inquiry was conducted as such, operating out of an incident room at Milford Haven Police Station. As roadblocks in the area continued stopping vehicles to question the occupants as to any knowledge of the victims or property, neighbouring farms and houses in the Milford Haven area and the surrounding villages were all visited for the same purpose. Specialist senior crime officers and a dedicated search team, meanwhile, began the mammoth and painstaking task of searching the remains of Scoverston Manor together with its surrounding lands, waters and outbuildings, for any possible discarded evidence. To assist in the search of the gutted house, the debris was hand-shoveled into large metal grills erected at the front of the property, which teams of officers would then sift through by hand, in particular looking for a murder weapon and or spent shotgun cartridges. They found nothing. There was an empty gun cupboard brought out and a quantity of live ammunition, but no firearms or spent cartridges. Police did find a pool of blood in a small outbuilding at the rear of the property, however. It was discovered some four days after the murders, and with it were two lead cartridge pellets embedded in a section of plasterboard there, and a blood-stained pellet embedded in the wall. A shirt button was also recovered that matched the remnants of the shirt Richard Thomas was found to be wearing when he was found, and two cartridge waddings, but again, no cartridges. Nothing else of note was found, despite a three and a half week intensive search of the area, and by then the inquiry had already run into difficulties. Because the property had been so gutted by fire, it was an impossible task to determine what, or indeed if, anything had been stolen. A shotgun or shotgun certainly had been, but had the offender been primarily after cash? Looking at the property from outside, it would suggest affluence, which the Thomases indeed had, yet little ready cash available, and it would be understandable for such a property to be a primary target for a robbery motive. Yet it didn't seem so. Richard was found to have £75 in cash in his jacket pocket, so why wasn't this taken? Meanwhile, 
the widespread appeal and investigation had managed to establish to an extent the final known movements of Richard and Helen on that Sunday before Christmas. Helen had attended morning service at Stainton Church, as she usually would, and had then spent time out gathering holly to decorate the church for the Christmas Day service. Richard had been seen on his tractor at nearby Norton Farm, where he then fed his cattle, and had spoken at length to two loggers who were working on his lands later that morning. At 1.30pm, he was seen in his battered rover car heading towards the nearby village of Nayland, but his movements following this were unknown until he was found later that night in his burning home. Helen had been seen late that afternoon leaving one of her own properties, Harmiston Farm, and driving back towards Scoverston. Now what she did for the remainder of the day was unknown, but at 9pm that evening, she took a telephone call at Scoverston from one of their tenants, farmer David Nicholas, who telephoned to speak to Richard. Helen told him that Richard was out but was expected back shortly and David agreed to speak to him the following day. Just over two hours later, Anna and Lorraine were battering on the locked front door of Scoverston Manor and both Helen and Richard had long since been brutally murdered. Police were still working on the theory that this was an armed robbery that went horrendously wrong, a view that was reinforced by local gossip that Richard was the type of wealthy landowner to trust a biscuit tin more than a bank and have loads of cash in the house. As I said, people straight away think that you never see a skint farmer, do you? If it was an armed robbery gone wrong, then it was thought a sizable cash reward would perhaps tempt someone in the know to come forward, because somebody must have known or suspected who had done it. Subsequently, a £25,000 reward was offered for information leading to the arrest of the killer, but this was never claimed, and it was back to police undertaking inquiries and sifting through information that was steadily coming in. This information included several sightings of people and vehicles seen in the area on the day of the murders that police wished to trace, with recurring themes amongst these being blue Land Rovers and bearded men. Several were reported as being seen very near to Scoverston at various times throughout that day. There were reports of a Land Rover parked near to the entrance of Scoverston Manor in a lay-by with two men apparently arguing in it. Ford Cortina cars parked nearby and a yellow car parked across the entrance to Scoverston Manor. People walking alone or with dogs in the nearby vicinity at various times throughout the day. A bearded man who was seen staring at the entrance to Scoverston Manor. And two men who were seen walking along the Stainton to Sentry Cross Road after nightfall. But despite widespread appeals in the press and through the local media, none of these people came forward. And then... More than a month after the murders, at 5pm on the evening of January the 28th, 1986, Detective Superintendent Davis received a telephone call at the incident room that was to just pose more questions, suggest another possible motive for the murders, and mean that a large part of the inquiry had to begin again. The call Detective Superintendent Davis had received had come from Chief Inspector Beard. What a fantastic name that is, O.I at the Forensic Science Laboratory in Chepstow, who'd reported that an anal swab taken from the body of Richard Thomas had revealed the presence of semen. Because at the time DNA profiling was in its infancy, nothing further than a blood group could be determined from this, 
There was no evidence to suggest rape from the post-mortem and it was Chief Inspector Beard's expert opinion that Richard had engaged in consensual sexual intercourse with another man shortly before his death. No one involved in the inquiry had foreseen that. So whilst police were surprised to say the least at this turn of events, Richard's surviving relatives and people who knew him were astonished at the news. Although he'd never married, had no children or a known partner, none of them had any idea that he was gay. And whilst police felt this discovery would prove to be the break in the case that they needed, for the investigation had been going nowhere really, and it now gave some explanation as to what Richard could have been doing in the missing afternoon hours of the fateful Sunday, they were also frustrated that for over a month they'd been investigating from the angle of pursuing an armed robbery gone wrong that now may have never taken place at all. Where Richard and Helen shot after an argument with a lover of Richard's. This was a sensitive but crucial line of inquiry and detectives worked to build up a rapport with and win the confidence of the gay community in the West Wales area to explore this. Now this couldn't have been an easy thing to do, could it? A few episodes back when we looked at the case of Michael Lupo and his horrific crimes less than a year later in London, the mistrust and opinion of police from the gay community back then was highlighted and that was in a large city such as London I can then only imagine how much more difficult it was establishing lines of trust in rural farming communities, where at the time being gay was probably something less open than in, say, London. But detectives did eventually manage to build up some rapport. Over 750 men in the area were interviewed as a result, with most being supportive and eager to help. They even held appeals of their own and some meetings to see how they could assist but not one person came forward to say that they even knew Richard Thomas, let alone admit to being his lover. But the publicity generated by this new information did produce three new distinct lines of inquiry. A woman who lived in Honeyborough Green in the nearby village of Nayland remembered that on regular occasions Richard had parked his car outside her house and had gone off for a number of hours with a bearded man in a blue Land Rover. She was certain it was Richard because she remembered the distinct battered Red Rover car and its even more distinctive number plate, DAX444K. Richard had now also reportedly been seen talking to a bearded man beside a blue Land Rover parked by Nayland Harbour on the afternoon of his death, which corresponded with the previous last known sighting of him at 1.30pm that afternoon at the Century Cross Roundabout driving towards Nayland. As we've already said, this seemed to be a recurring theme throughout the investigation, bearded men and blue Land Rovers, so was this Richard's mystery lover? What would seem to suggest it was, was the third line of inquiry raised from the publicity about this new revelation, that Richard had been seen in the company of a large bearded fat man on more than one occasion, watching late-night adult films at the Palace Cinema in Haverford West. Management there recognised Richard as being a regular customer when his picture was published in newspapers following the murders, and remembered that on a number of occasions when he'd been there shortly before his death, he'd met and sat with, guess who? A large bearded fat man. Now an artist's impression of this man was sketched by the Palace Cinema projectionist and widely circulated, 
whilst police kept a close watch on other cinemas that were showing adult films in the area, even arranging for more to be shown, hoping that this may draw the man out. But he never voluntarily came forward and was never found. Tying a bearded fat man in with a blue Land Rover also proved to be a negative line of inquiry, although more than 2,000 people owning Land Rovers and a further 2,500 plus people having access to one were spoken to, none of them were to admit being Richard's lover or having any kind of relationship with him whatsoever. By March 1986, a team of 140 officers had been working tirelessly on the case, but were getting nowhere. Richard's lover had not been found, and after weeks of searching and examining, no evidence was found to suggest that Richard even had a regular partner. The semen sample from the anal swab was the sole evidence to suggest that he was even gay. But this angle did form part of the appeal when the murders were reconstructed and shown on the Crime Watch UK broadcast in April 1986. The structure of the film also contained what was known about the Thomases' lives, their known movements on the day of the murder, the various sightings of cars and people around the Scoverston Manor area on the day of the murder, the last known telephone call taken by Helen Thomas that evening, and Richard's visits to watch late-night adult films, complete with the artist's impression of his fat-bearded companion. Even the fire at Scoverston Manor was spectacularly recreated by the BBC Special Effects Department, using the actual gutted remains of the house and so successful was the recreation that it was reported more people reported Scoverston Manor as being on fire for the reconstruction purposes than the night of the actual fire. It was of course recreated under controlled conditions, it wasn't just left there to burn, and Dovid Fire Service had been pre-warned and were on hand. Although the Crime Watch appeal took more than 200 calls from across the country, the majority of these were theories as to the identity of the fat cinema-goer, or the driver of the blue Land Rover or various vehicles, and although each were followed up, they all came to dead ends. Gradually, the investigating team was scaled down, because crime doesn't hang about, does it? And by the time of the coroner's court returning a verdict of unlawful killing by person or persons unknown, on June the 27th, 1986, there were only about 30 officers still working on the case. The angle of a gay lover having killed Richard in an argument then Helen to prevent him being identified, and then burning the house down to remove any forensic traces before fleeing, couldn't be discounted of course, but the gut feeling investigating officers still had was that this was a robbery that had gone wrong, and that the Thomases knew their killer, hence the reason for their executions. The best hypothesis they could formulate as to what had happened that Sunday night was as follows. The fire was first discovered at about 11.15pm that evening and forensic fire investigators examining the scene reported after a few days that due to the time it would take a fire to take hold to such an extent at a large property such as Scoverston Manor that it had been started deliberately about an hour before. Rolled up pieces of paper that were soaked in diesel fuel taken from a recently installed tanker diesel that was found near one of the outbuildings with the lock broken on it, had been placed at numerous strategic positions inside the property. It was unable to be determined in how many places and exactly where these incendiaries had been placed, but they certainly included the bottom step to the first floor staircase, inside Helen's bedroom, 
and around and underneath Richard Thomas's body that was on the first floor landing. They could then pinpoint the time of the siblings' deaths as being between 9 and 10pm that evening, able to do so because at 9pm that evening Helen had taken a telephone call from one of her tenants, David Nicholas, and had reportedly sounded fine. He'd called asking for Richard but was told that he was out at that moment and was expected back soon. It was believed that shortly after this call, Helen then heard a disturbance and went to investigate, but was apprehended by an intruder at gunpoint and marched up to her first floor bedroom. Here, she was bound with a length of black knotted rope and was gagged and blindfolded with a shirt or item of clothing before being callously shot in the head at point-blank range, causing massive and instantly fatal wounds. Still tied, Helen's lifeless body was then placed onto her bed. The killer then waited in the darkness for Richard Thomas to return. Shortly afterwards, Richard returned and parked his battered Red Rover car in the outbuilding garage where it was customary parked before being apprehended by the killer near one of the outbuildings. He was either forced inside here at gunpoint or ran inside to flee from the intruder before being followed in and shot in the head, which although hit him on the left side and caused a substantial wound, was a glancing blow. Just 20% of the pellets from the UK number no. 5 shotgun cartridge that had been fired for this shot were found in Richard at post-mortem. It could be determined for definite that this had happened in one of the outer buildings, as a large pool of blood was found underneath some polystyrene sacking in the said building, directly in line with where shotgun pellets matching those recovered from Richard Thomas's head wound were also found in the wall, and a button matching the remnants of those on his shirt. There was some discrepancy about this pool of blood. At first it was thought not to belong to Richard or Helen, and police believed that the killer themselves had been injured during the murder. Then in the new year, this changed to the blood unlikely belonging to anyone other than Richard. It didn't make any sense at all, but this was when DNA testing was in its infancy, of course. So it was thought an unconscious Richard was then dragged into the property either by his feet or by being dragged inside on a blanket that was found to have baling twine attached to it, the blanket that was found underneath his body. Perhaps he was being carried upstairs before the fire was set, but came to midway up the stairs and began struggling with the killer, leading to an ultimately fatal shotgun wound to the right side of his lower abdomen, which must have caused massive, near-instantly fatal wounds as the barrel was determined to have been pressed right up against Richard's flesh. A full column of 12-bore cartridge loaded with UK number no. 5 shot was removed from his body post-mortem. Can you imagine that kind of wound? The now double killer then removed all of the empty cartridge cases from the scene and placing ammunition and firearms from the property into a bag, plus any cash or valuables that was found immediately lying about, now set about attempting to remove any traces of being there in the most extreme way. Heading outside and forcing the lock on the diesel tank near the house, a large quantity of rolled up paper was soaked in it and placed all around the property at different points. These were then lit and then as the fire took hold, the killer made their getaway across the darkened fields, perhaps at first considering taking Richard's car but then abandoning the idea as the vehicle was found to be open 
and the ignition keys from the vehicle had not been found. So what was the requiem for murder at all? An intruder at a random house could have simply fled and been away, even if they had been disturbed. Murder is a massive step up from burglary. It was thought likely that the house was known to the killer though and had been targeted based on local rumours of potential rich pickings from there. So if so, then it was likely a killer either from or having very strong connections with the local area. The house was too screened from view for an opportune burglar who just happened to be driving past. So if the house was known to the killer, then was the killer known to either Richard or Helen Thomas? and so could have been identified by fleeing the scene and leaving them alive. Did Helen recognise the intruder, which led to a death? Did Richard interrupt the burglary upon his return from wherever he'd been? Or was he shot first, then Helen killed before she could raise the alarm? Police could only surmise. All local persons with a known record of violence had been rounded up and spoken to very early in the inquiry, not as an afterthought or anything and no one at the time had jumped out as a likely suspect. By October 1986, 10 months into the inquiry, more than 70,000 actions, statements and reports were on file in the incident room, and police had progressed no further than the hypothesis I outlined just before. It certainly wasn't for a lack of effort, and what must have frustrated each officer on the case is that if it was a local killer, and gut feeling was that it was, then they would have already been spoken to over the course of the inquiry and not recognised. With nothing else to go on, barring new information coming in, the investigation was effectively wound down and shelved. It was never closed, unsolved murders never are, although I don't imagine there are too many officers working on the identity of Jack the Ripper or anything. But all police could do was wait for new information coming in that may provide the breakthrough or for the killer to strike again. Now the former was favoured of course, the latter is unthinkable, and indeed it was thought to be more likely. Unsolved double shotgun murders are few and far between after all aren't they? Until almost four years later, less than seven miles away from Scoverston Manor, there was another one. And that folks is where I've decided we shall leave the tale for this week. It was originally going to be a longer episode, but now I've come to record it, I think it will work better if the two cases are focused upon separately. So I've decided that's what I'll do. There is still a hell of a lot to go on it. It's a remarkable story, it really is, and it's one we'll catch up with in the next episode. It's probably going to be longer than a trilogy now, but it's all about telling the tale and how best that works. I hope that you've found part one, what's just become part one, of the Recluses and the Ramblers informative and interesting so far, and that I hope you can join me for the next part, which will be out next week. I don't blame you for having a Google if it's a tale that you don't already know. I totally would myself, I'd be straight on it, but if you do, then I hope you guys can join me for my spin on the complete tale. I'm wrapping this part up here now then, so I thank you guys very much for joining me here today. I've been, I still am, and still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now.